you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, we endeavor to finish the ninth chapter today. And then we'll take of the Lord's Supper together. Hebrews 9. Uh, we, we'll go th- uh, from verses, we read verse 15 last time. I'm going to reread it and uh, I'll read it up to verse 22 and then we'll pick up and read verses 23 through 28 um, as we get into the study just for the sake of time. So let me just read verses 15 through 22 to start with. If you, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. We're glad to do so. One hand. Starting with uh, verse 15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of, inher- of eternal of the eternal inheritance. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. In other words, if there's a will in your life, the will is in force once you die, right? Then the will has someone has to be the executor of the will. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. And that's something you probably don't think of with your will, right? You're like, oh, this seems, all right, I understand the first part. How does this fit in? Reading on. Verse 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book in itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And likewise, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes. We would understand a little bit more, maybe perhaps a lot more, of what you've done on our behalf. We'd appreciate it. We'd understand it, Lord. And it would have a work of growth and transformation in our life. Lord, remove me once again from the equation that we might hear from you, your word, the living word, Jesus himself. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. The late Dr. Adrian Rogers, some of you probably listen to him on the radio sometimes, he said this. He goes, he said, you are not saved by the plan of salvation. You are saved by the man of salvation. Understand that both are needed. The plan is needed. The man is needed. But the sinless man, the God-man that came down from God, which we celebrate this Christmas season, the coming down of Christ, is Jesus is the salvation. He's the salvation. He's the door. And that man was the son of man, the son of God, the lamb of God. Jesus, whose sacrifice was not only the greatest, but also the most undeserved on our behalf. And his death undeserved on his behalf. 
the most undeserved in all of time, all of space, all of eternity. But in fact, his sacrifice was the only sacrifice, the only sacrifice that the Father would ever accept. You agree with that? The only sacrifice the Father would accept. And remember, there had been a few thousand years and literally thousands upon thousands of sacrifices that had already been made, that had already been offered before Jesus came. But praise God that Jesus fulfilled and finished all that the Father required. He finished it, all the requirements. Our job is to believe it, to receive it, to walk in the atonement. Well, the word atonement means reconciliation. Something's reconciled. It also means covering, this word atonement. Our job is to receive and to walk in this sacrifice that Jesus has provided. And what's written here in the second half of Hebrews 9, Now we, I know we weren't in the, the verses 1 through 15 for a few weeks because you had Tito and you had Mark, but what's written here in the second half further expresses what Christ did. What we can deduct from all of this, and I know that I said that the Hebrews is like not 101, it's like 401, 501, 601 level. What we can deduct from all this, from all the book of Hebrews, is that God intends for us to have a deeper appreciation for the sacrifice of his son. Did you know God wants you to appreciate it more? He wants you to understand it more. What it means in our lives, what it means to our souls. Most things in your life don't really help the soul. This understanding will help your soul. I didn't say save your soul. If you're saved, you're already saved. It'll help your soul. It'll help my soul. If you're taking notes this morning, again, I've titled this The Greatest Sacrifice. And I can be confident in that title. There's no sacrifice like it. Never has been, never will be. Now, as I mentioned on several occasions, so much of the book of Hebrews is unique even among the New Testament epistles. Every book is unique in its own right. But I'm, and in this sense that the Holy Spirit has given the writer very specific details and depth. We've talked about the depth of this book. Related to Christ fulfilling the old covenant requirements, the types, the copies, the foreshadows. And as we've seen, even explaining the pre-law and pre-priesthood ministry of Melchizedek, which the Bible mentions in passing in the Old Testament, but Hebrews does that when we talk about a deep dive on Melchizedek and how it all pointed to who? Jesus Christ. And verse, verses nine, uh, go back to verses 8 and 9. If you look on uh, uh, where we were a few weeks ago, verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing, Verse 9, it was symbolic. The writer expressly tells us the symbolic nature of the pre-incarnate. Now, you hear this word incarnate or incarnation 
around Christmas, that means God coming down as Christ, the incarnation, God becoming visible to man. But all of that pre-incarnate work through Israel, the tabernacle, as well as the priesthood, and how these God-given vessels and the mandates were all awaiting the fulfillment of who? The Messiah. Everything was waiting for the Messiah. But here's the point. You can absolutely come into a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ. I did. You can come into a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your sacrifice without understanding the depth of Hebrews. You can absolutely come into that saving relationship without ever understanding the depth of Hebrews and what's unfolding here. In fact, our believing in Christ to be saved, according to Jesus himself, we have to become like a little child, right? That's what he said. He doesn't slap Hebrews into most five-year-olds' hands. You had to become like a little child for salvation. Simple faith genuinely sorry for our sins, humbly asking for forgiveness. Salvation is granted. Jesus says, yes, I'll save you. Yes, I'll rescue you. Remember the thief on the cross? He didn't have any theology. Lord, remember me when you come into paradise. That was it. Without all that deeper understanding that Hebrews requires, you can still be saved. Jesus is saving many around the world, even today, that don't know all this depth. They just know they need to be forgiven. They just know they're wretched and, please help me. That said, our growth, if God allows you to remain alive, the thief on the cross, he went straight to paradise. But if he had lived another 50 years, guess what? God would call him to know Hebrews. He would. If he was still alive, but Jesus said, no, 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 that's my grace, I can cover all, but if I'm going to keep you on this earth, you're going to learn. That said, our growth and perseverance is dependent, let me say this again, your growth and perseverance is dependent on, and mine, our roots growing deeper. It's dependent on our roots growing deeper. We just got our Christmas tree. Once you cut that baby off, it, it doesn't do roots anymore, does it? The only thing that can happen to it now is I can keep it alive by putting water in it for about three weeks. After that, all the needles will fall off. It's going to die. But that's totally different than you go planting a Christmas tree. It actually starts to grow and grow and grow. And how is it growing? The roots are going deeper. Totally different and cutting off a knife. The, nice, the, the brand new one looks better than the one you planted at first. But it's not long before they switch roles, right? If you've been saved, you've been planted to grow. So we're saved with this childlike faith, but we're to grow with diligence, with continued surrender, with an increased revelation, an increased awe, an increased appreciation for all Christ has done. And if God thinks all of this deep stuff in Hebrews, if God thinks all of this is critically important to our growth, we can be sure that it is. Amen? If God says, I want you to know this, then we should want to know it. And so we want to look at, and in our spirit appreciate, the finished work of our faith. 
uh, we're already saved if we're saved. But God says, now I want you to get into the ground deeper so you can actually support branches that you can actually have some birds nest in you. Not, not, you know what I mean. But, you know, we actually would provide life beyond ourself. Because like, I want you to be able to hang a swing set off the branches that you get stronger. But as we increase in that understanding, it will deepen our love and commitment to Christ. And for the sake of giving us a familiar framework and directly related to the language that's used of what I just read, uh, used by the author, some theologians and some pastors have referred to verses 15 through all the way through 28, in fact, which we'll be reading verse 23 to 28 in a few minutes. Uh, some have referred to this section of Hebrews as the last will and testament of Jesus. It's been referred to that way as the last will and testament of Jesus, just to give a framework for what we just read. Again, the language here that's used contains legal and binding terminology. You might have saw it. Testament, testator, covenant. These are legal terms. And Christ's death, it parallels the law of Moses. Parallels the law of Moses. Did you, we, we can see that Jesus came and fulfilled all the law. Of particular importance is the clause that closes the 15th verse. Look back at verse 15. It's where we understand that we're moving into this last will or this legal terminology of a will. It says, last sentence or clause of verse 15, after the covenant, uh, or I can even read first covenant, after that uh, there's a comma, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Also a legal term. The inheritance. He's saying, here's the... You have an inheritance coming to you, but there has to be a living will that's established. So let's look at and appreciate um, that the death benefit bequeathed to the living is because he lives. Amen. It's because he lives that this has been bequeathed to us. We want to appreciate three elements of this testament and sacrifice of Jesus. If you're taking notes, the first thing we'll look at together is the witness of Christ's blood. The word testament here in verse 16 is the Greek word diatheke. It means the last disposition which one makes of his earthly possessions after his death, a testament or a will. So we understand uh, that also retains its meaning throughout the Old and New Testament, and that meaning is covenant. Wherever you see the word testament, it always means covenant. But here it has the added meaning of uh, a will. still means covenant because the will isn't a covenant in and of itself. Jesus is portrayed here as both the author of the will and the executor or administrator of the will. Did you understand that? Jesus is the author of it, but he also is the one that administers it. Similar to him being both the sacrifice and the high priest. That was never done before, right? Along comes Jesus. He's both the lamb and the priest. He can do all of these things simultaneously, although they did them, he did them in the span of time. Now, under the new covenant, Christ his atonement would be what? Eternal. 
eternal. Verse 15, eternal inheritance, right? Now, you and I receive an inheritance. If you, if you receive an inheritance, some of you might have received from your grandparents or something like that. It's not eternal because you will eventually have to pass it on if you didn't spend it all or, or you bought a car and it's now in the junkyard. Or your, your inheritance is not eternal. It's temporal. Eventually, it all fades away. It turns back to what? To dust and to ashes, but not this inheritance. This atonement is eternal. Eternal inheritance. But under the law and the old covenant, there was limited atonement. All these sacrifices, limited atonement. You know, um, what it means when you see these sacrifices in the Old Testament, and there's a lot of them, and they happen constantly. But under the law and the covenant, there's limited atonement. God promised to bless Israel as a people and a nation if they kept the covenant. Didn't make them sinless. Didn't preserve them from everything. It just was constant, keep doing the sacrifices. Keep following my law. And God would have overlooked. And by the way, God's never looked for perfection. That's why Jesus said, well done, good and faithful servant. He never said to Israel to be perfect. They just would take and completely lop off entire key elements of the covenant. And so God was going to require that of them. Amen? It's, okay. it's a big difference. And say this with a marriage. How many believe your marriage is a covenant? It's a big difference between forgetting to do something you promised to do, then when you get called on the carpet for it, getting angry about it, having an argument, and going out and committing adultery. One is an indiscretion. One is an absolute covenant breaker. You see the difference? So the, the limit atonement was always covering these small indiscretions and even some big stuff provided there was genuine repentance. Limited atonement. But it wasn't like eternal saving stuff. So the sacrifice had to keep being made, keep being made, keep being made. Another lamb, another bull, another calf. Limited atonement. But a sacrifice and shed blood was required. We just read in the text. Uh, it says, Moses, uh, therefore, verse 18, therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. God required the blood. It was, um, the blood was required. This also symbolized the seriousness of sin, that something had to die. The blood signified the seriousness of sin and, and the great need for mercy and for grace. The old covenant was ratified with the shed blood of innocent animals. Those of you that are animal lovers, you know who you are. Those of you that are animal lovers, you would have hated this constantly seeing animals die for no reason. Now, obviously, they were eaten, and we still eat today, and Scott said no dead animals, but I happen to know he loves jerky, so, you know, he does like some things like that. But, um, but these innocent animals, their blood had to be shed. Verse 19, for Moses, he spoke in the law, he spoke about uh, the blood of calves and goats had to be shed. In fact, almost everything, according, according to verse 22, was sanctified and cleansed and ready for use by the sprinkling of blood. Because it was, it was a sign that God was giving new life. Sin was atoned for temporarily by the blood, and the articles of worship were consecrated by the blood. But the shedding of innocent 
animal blood, the imperative and mandate of blood sacrifices under the law were all pointing to a greater fulfillment and a permanent remission. You know, when someone says that, hey, they had cancer, but they're under what? Remission. But we know, I had a sister pass away, me and my brother, our sister passed away from cancer, our oldest sister. She went into remission, and then it came back. The second time, took her life. Remission in earth, a lot of times, is temporary. But Jesus and, and this blood sacrifice in the Old Testament, they would give remission, but temporary. Jesus says, I'm going to come and offer permanent remission. You'll never fall back into the curse of death. A permanent remission. The blood of Jesus. It's a game changer, isn't it? It's a game changer. It's a history changer. It's an eternity changer. Our partaking of the Lord's Supper and Communion that we'll do shortly here in a few minutes is our remembrance and our gratitude for the blood of Jesus. Because we know it's greater than the blood of bulls and calves. We recognize, as the hymn says, so beautifully proclaimed, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is the flow that makes us white as what? Snow. Only the blood of Jesus can do this. Nothing else can do it. It's supernatural. Red blood doesn't make... Did you know that the Bible even says that the blood of Jesus makes our garments white? Right. Try washing something in white and red. Do it. Just for fun. Show the kids. Say, let's do this together. Let's take red paint. Let's wash this white garment in red paint, and let's see if it comes out even whiter than we started with. Why does the Bible say it? Because it's supernatural that you could take white garments, drop them into the blood of Jesus, and they come out pure white. It defies everything because this blood is different blood. This blood is God's cleansing blood. Does it hold it? It's not just that supernatural. It's that undeserved. It's equally supernatural as it is undeserved. And yet Jesus said, I'm going to give it to you freely. F.B. Meyer said, Through just, though justification cost us nothing but the sacrifice of our pride, it has cost Christ his blood. Just the sacrifice of our pride. Isn't that the truth? Pride and self-will keep many from Jesus. Kept me from Jesus for the first 25 years of my life. What a contrast, huh? He gave everything. He's always telling us to... Just say, I surrender. Not telling me to go down a cross. Not for salvation. That may come later down the road. But we respond, we respond to his greatest sacrifice with our wisest sacrifice, that of our will. God's looking at you and me and says, where's your will? Jesus prayed in the garden, thy will be done. He's looking at our will. Now, with the seal of the blood understood as essential, the writer returns to the unique ministry of Christ, uh, which, in the word, when you hear this word Christ in this season, means anointed. It was priest, prophets, 
kings. They were anointed with oil. Jesus was God's anointed. He was the, the one that the Holy Spirit came down and anointed him like the dove. That was God's picture of his anointed. And that's when you see, hear the word Christ. But now the writer returns to Jesus as both priest and sacrifice. He first wanted to establish that you understood the blood and the necessity of the blood to actually ratify the covenant. Pick it up with me in verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies, there's that word again, the copies or symbolism, the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with a better sacrifice. In other words, that heaven needed Jesus' blood, not animal blood. In other words, in the, in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the heavens, it had to be the blood of Jesus, not some lamb blood that was perfect as best we could see on the outside. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, not stonework from you know, the Jerusalem stone that you'll see over in Israel if you go there, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God. I love this circle in my Bible. For us. For us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, which is Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement, verse 26. He would then have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And... As it is appointed to men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Let's take a look at the sacrifice of himself. So we understand where the blood fits in, why it was important to ratify the covenant. Now the writer, that was kind of a step out. Make sure you understand that all covenants, the will, the testament, had to be ratified by the blood. That's why the blood was in the New Testament. Now let me get back. This is the writer. Now let me get back to the sacrifice himself, the priest. You need to understand Jesus again. The writer just keeps deep diving. And you need to get this. You need to get it deep in your spirit, deep in your soul. Here again, we have a parallel of what's in heaven. And Christ is the eternal priest versus what was built on the earth was established on the earth with the tabernacle first, which was portable, and later the temple, which was structural there in Jerusalem. And the Levitical high priest, which, as we know, Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi, tribe of Judah, king tribe, not of the tribe of uh, Levi. And like Melchizedek, as we learned, Melchizedek was not Levitical either. He wasn't, he was even before the Levitical priesthood, before Levi was ever born. Abraham bowed himself before Melchizedek because he was outside. He was, he, was at, he was at another level of authority. And Jesus, of course, is even higher than all. But going back to the copies, we, if you look, we don't have time to read it, but back, remember back verses 1 through 5, we actually saw the holy place and the elements and the articles that are inside the holy place. These are the copies he's speaking of. They were given first to Moses. And we see Christ entering the holy place in heaven. Not made with human hands. Solomon would build the first temple. Then Zerubbabel would 
rebuild the temple. And later, Herod the Great expanded it till, it till it was certainly one of the wonders of the ancient world. But no, Jesus goes into the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple. He has ascended out of the grave into his holy place. Now, Hebrews was written, you, you probably know this, but in case you don't, Hebrews was written before the book of Revelation. Hebrews was written before John was banished to the Isle of Patmos and had the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the writer of Hebrews, this is my own, as I've read this a number of times, my, my kind of conclusion in the matter is that the writer of Hebrews, I know he was told about the heavenly temple and could write down what he was told, but I don't think that he necessarily saw it. But John did. Look at John 10, 19. You don't have to turn there because I have it ready for you. Uh, John, there, 11, 19. Anyway, whatever. The verse, it's in there. I promise it. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. John actually sees it. The writer of Hebrews describes it. The Holy Spirit says, all right, write this down, write this down, write this down. There's a temple. Jesus enters into it. There's a holy place. John would be aware of this. Hebrews was already written, but John sees it. He literally sees the Ark of the Covenant there in Revelation. By way of reminder, uh, the Holy of Holies... Uh, in the earthly Holy of Holies, uh, the priest would enter again that once per year, which is referenced here in the text, on that Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And the sprinkling of the blood was for the people once a year. He'd go, go in there, and, and this was the holiest day of all. Everybody would fast. We talked about this a few weeks back. Um, but Jesus now appears in the heavenly Holy of Holies for us. Not once you're saved, you're saved. You're sealed in the day of redemption. But he appears in heaven to constantly minister to us and for us. And not annually, but continually, perpetually. And by the way, in addition to the Day of Atonement, there were daily sacrifices. We, we read from Ezra, he mentioned what? The evening sacrifice, right? There was a morning sacrifice. There was the evening sacrifice, but now there's no need for continual sacrifice. Aren't you glad you don't have to sacrifice an animal? It's a lot of work. Not to mention it would break your heart constantly to have to do it, if you, especially if you're a real animal lover. You hunters would say, hey, no big deal to me, but, uh, but still work. You don't have to have a daily sacrifice because Jesus' blood, verse 25, it says, not with the blood of another. His own blood. His blood. It's perfect. And he came once. You're, you, I, when I was reading the text, you heard I emphasized once. He came once for this. It's a one-time mission Jesus came on. One-time mission. You and I rarely get things done once anyway, right? We have to take sec several passes at things. Jesus, it was a one-time mission, a one-time sacrifice that was to atone for all of time and all all of sins. It said to put away all the sins here in this passage. And why? Because 
His death was to save us from imminent death and judgment. It says, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. The Bible says it's imminent. I know most people try and kind of make death kind of, I was, I was on reading on a, one of my Twitter feeds or something like that, and someone made a comment about a dirt nap. That's a fun way, I guess, to call, you know, be, but, but the Bible calls it the judgment to come, not a nap. If you're saved, it's a nap, because we sleep until, you know, our bodies, our spirits are present with the Lord, but our bodies are in a sleep state while our spirits are immediately with Jesus. If you die, you're immediately in the presence of God, but one day the body and the spirit will come together, right? The resurrection of the saints. We'll get to that in a second, too. All of these things, but... There's a judgment coming, and Jesus said, I must go to prepare a way that they can avoid the judgment. Even though we're saying we'll still live in heaven, we'll still have the judgment seat of Christ, which is a kind of a review of what we did for the Lord, but it's not a cast into everlasting darkness like the great white throne judgment, totally different. But all of these things, the blood was so important, so uh, required the sacrifice of Jesus. And he did it all because of the imminent death and judgment to come. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for when his, when, when you're, everyone has that dash between two dates, right? Are you ready if he calls you home? Are you ready to meet him? Now, when Christ took those final steps to the cross, it, it would fulfill yet another foreshadow. If you go back to Genesis chapter 22, you don't have to go back there because I have it ready for you. Uh, you go back to Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. Abraham was the father, Isaac the son. Right there we see the metaphor, right? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering so they both went together. Abraham didn't know the full extent of what he just said there. The Holy Spirit will actually have saints of old say something that means exactly what it means for the moment, but it also has a wider fulfillment. And so he says this, God will provide for himself a lamb. Later on, Abraham, perhaps in his own lifetime, but definitely when we got to heaven, like, ah, I know what I said there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? At least when he got to heaven, he's like, you used me to say a prophecy, didn't you? I did not know I was prophesying, but he was. He would provide, God will provide for himself a lamb. And, of course, you know, we are called the sons and daughters of Abraham, so this would make sense that the father of our faith in the sense that Abraham was saved by faith, and we see this you know, kind of outlined by Paul in Romans, it would make sense that he would be used to give this prophecy. And at the cross of Calvary, as prophesied, by Abraham, God not only provided for himself a lamb, but provided himself as the lamb. Isn't that great? That doesn't make Abraham's statement less factual. God did provide a lamb himself. The prophecy's 100% true. It just was even bigger than Abraham thought. Abraham was like, we need a lamb right now. There was a ram in the thicket. Prophecy number one. But we need a lamb, Jesus is going to come, prophecy number two. Jesus gave himself, which this text tells us here. He gave himself. Look at the text. That, uh, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
He said, I'll provide a lamb. I am the lamb. Even John, when, he, when John the Baptist saw him, he said what? Behold, the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. John said, that's the lamb right there. That's who Abraham was really talking about. Whether Abraham understood it at the time or not. Now, what the seal of the blood understood is essential. The writer returns to this unique ministry of Christ, uh, which we saw, and we want to now, in the last few minutes that we have, Jesus, he came to lay down his life in his first coming. He came as a lamb, not as a king in his first coming. Amen? We're glad he didn't come as a king or we would have all been cast out. But he came as a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. But there's a sequel to this story. There's a sequel to the Christmas story. There's a sequel to the resurrection story. And we want to close with this, the hope of the redeemed. Uh, let, me first say, uh, let me first say this. Aren't you glad Jesus only suffered and died once? That he was only offered up once? That he only bled to death once? That he only was tortured once? I'm glad he did that for me. But I'm also glad I didn't have to see it. I really am. I mean, I, I'm glad that my seeing it is the testimony of other saints that did see it, that wrote it down. They saw it. It was horrifying to them. But because they saw it and so horrifying, they were equally ecstatic when they saw him alive. And nail prints in his hand here. He says, touch my flesh, Thomas. You know, check it out. It was horrifying for them. I'm glad I didn't see it, but I'm glad I believe it. And I'm glad he did it on our behalf. Thank God that Jesus died on the cross. But what he wants us now to do is accept it and appreciate it and walk in it and apply it in our life. And so I'm thankful that his once was enough to cover all my sins and to cover all of your sins. It really is amazing grace, but it's also amazing blood. It's an amazing sacrifice. But here's how the gift of salvation uh, really how it works in us. Once we fully realized that at the point of salvation, once we fully realized how helpless and hopeless we were and how victorious and faithful Jesus is, we go from helpless and hopeless to hopeful and anticipating. To hopeful and anticipating. We should, now that we know the whole story, and I know, and when I say we know the whole story, there's parts of it we can't comprehend because it's still beyond us. We will not really get it, get it, get it, get it, get it until we get to heaven. But we get enough. We should be like kids on Christmas Eve. Just you, the parents are holding them back at the top of the stairs, right? A part of our spirit should be like kids on Christmas Eve. We don't care if we're in footy pajamas. We're flying down the stairs. Feet going out from under us while we, you know, whatever it is, we, we are ready. Why? He supplied everything through his death and resurrected life. Everything. Now we can live, really live for him. 
The blood was supplied by Jesus. The body was supplied by Jesus. The conquering of death was supplied by Jesus. The access to the Holy of Holies, supplied by Jesus. Nothing was supplied by us. He never once came to me and said, I could really use some help, Tim. No, my help was filthy rags. That was your help. Our contribution was, we sent him to the cross. His contribution was everything, all that we need. Andrew Murray said this. He said, each time before you intercede, be quiet and worship God in his glory. Think of what he can do. Think of your place and privilege in Christ and expect great things. Like the kid on Christmas Eve. We can expect. He's already done great things, and the reason why he's given us the book of Hebrews is that we would do greater things with the appreciation, with the maturity, with the growth. Right now, by the blood, you've been born again. You have access to the throne room of God, our high priest. His greatest sacrifice is our source of strength. We have a guaranteed victory. These promises and these blessings should propel us forward in our faith with a joyful obedience. I mean, we're already saved and we're already on the winning side of eternity, but there's more. Are you eagerly awaiting the sequel? Look at the end of verse 28. So to those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time. Are you eagerly awaiting the sequel? Not like some book or movie sequels where the first one did so good they decide to cobble a second one together, right? That's how a lot of sequels work. Hey, that was so great. We made a billion dollars. We should do another one. No. This second portion was always in the will and plan of God. It was always a two-part, old covenant, new covenant, first coming, second coming, right? There was always, the sequel was part of the original plan. It has everything to do with our salvation. Uh, it says he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Even the second coming has to do with our salvation, for salvation. Why? When we see Jesus face to face, you know, understand, our salvation is already secured, but then it's fully realized. It's already secured. It's like on layaway but fully paid off kind of thing, right? It's already secured, but it's fully realized when we see him face to face. We go from ownership to full possession. Are you serving Christ and eagerly awaiting his return? You see, this waiting, it's a patient endurance. It's a faithful serving. It's a hopeful longing for eternity with Christ. You start to realize that, yes, pumpkin pie tastes great, but I'm, po I'm positive heaven will be better. Yes, these things are great. Uh, eggnog is the, you know, one of the greatest inventions of all time, but there's got to be better things in heaven. This is our joy, um, joyful the word hope, we talk about it here a lot. It means joyful expectation. Not, not, not just, you. Kind of, I hope this happens. You know it'll happen. That, it gives you joy to know it's going to happen. You know it's going to happen. 
Just like you would have not the joyful expectation of tax season, you know it's coming. But it's not a joyful expectation. You know it's coming. And you're like, ah. But the return of Christ is, I know it's coming, and it's awesome. And notice the wording here. He's coming for those specifically that eagerly are awaiting his return. Hmm. The author didn't write this by accident. He didn't like say, well, I'm going to write it just, I'm going to say eagerly, but it really is forever. No, no. Eagerly. Jesus is coming for those who are eagerly awaiting his return. In other words, genuine salvation produces genuine patience and longing. Genuine salvation produces a patient endurance and a longing to see Christ. If you're genuinely saved, you'll want Jesus to return. If you have no longing, get back to the cross. Get back to the nail-pierced feet of Jesus if there's no longing in your heart for his return. Not a good place to be. Get back to the Word. Get back into prayer. Get back to talking to Christ. Back into fellowship with the saints. We of all people should be full of hope and joyful expectation this season. We should be. We should be eagerly awaiting the sequel, his return. Let me close with this passage from 1 Thessalonians 4, 17-18. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Isn't that great? Yeah. You won't need United Airlines or uh, American Airlines or Southwest. You will immediately be standing in the clouds. You won't be afraid of heights. None of that will matter. It'll be all gone. You'll be standing in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord. I love the last part. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. They're strengthening words. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just bow again before you. We're so thankful you sent your son. Jesus, we're so thankful you shed your blood, which was required. We're so thankful, Lord, that you gave yourself, which was more than enough. Lord, our role is simply to believe it, receive it, apply it, and now walk in it. Lord, we, if we're saved, we want to be more thankful for our salvation than when we walked in these doors. We want to grow in that salvation. If you think these things are important for us to appreciate, Lord, we know that they are. And so by faith and obedience, we just want to accept that. And Lord, we pray that you would have it drop deep into our spirit for the impact on our soul. Not for salvation, Lord, just that we'd be that much brighter lights in the dark days in which we live. 